My name is Mark. I'm the minister here, the rector here, and it's just great to see you uh, and uh, to join together is to think about um, Boaz. And you go, why Boaz? Why Boaz? Thank you. Why Boaz? Well, why not? Why not? Uh, why not Boaz? I'll tell you why Boaz, because we're thinking about uh, God calling us to do the stuff, to live for him in the world. And this little book of Ruth, these four chapters, this short story, is an amazing example of ordinary people doing the stuff, of ordinary people being used by God in their ordinary, everyday, day-to-day lives to change the world. And uh, that's incredibly encouraging because I don't know what your experience of religion is, right? But here's how it often goes. Uh, And I'm not saying this is true of any one of you here, but I know this is uh, conversations I've had with people over the years and how many of us think of religion, which is something like this. Uh, I go out and I live my life day to day and I just kind of make it work. I do what it takes. uh, And then uh, occasionally... When I'm in need, when I need some kind of insurance for the future maybe, or I feel guilty, or I'm bargaining with God because I've lost something, occasionally I'll come to church or the mosque or the temple and I'll do some religious activity and that'll set me right with God and then I go out into the world and I do my thing the rest of the time until I need God again, then I come back here and I do my stuff and then I go out and I do my stuff out there. That's sort of how it works, right? Um, Now, that's a common human phenomena. We often just think, well, you know, we've got to make life work, and we go and do it, and then occasionally we come and we do religious stuff. Now, that, as common as that is, you know, that is not at all what Christianity is about. Not at all. Not at all what God wants for you and for me, if we're prepared to join with him in this work, is that every part of our lives is religious, as it were. That is, that everything we do, we do with God and we do for God and we do it in such a way that it fulfills uh, God's purposes for the world and the way he's wired it up, Christianity says, as I live with God and for God, doing what he wants in the world, you know what? I find that I flourish and I become more alive and more human and more full of joy and more full of meaning and more full of purpose than I could possibly otherwise have accomplished. And we see that here in Boaz. In, uh, if you need any convincing, here's Boaz. He's a phenomenal example of uh, a human being who is used by God to do amazing things, but amazing things that are also actually quite ordinary and are not what we would call typically religious. The action in this story does not take place in church, does it? No, it doesn't. That's the right answer. It doesn't take place in church. It's in the world. So what we're going to look at is who is Boaz? What does he do and what's the result of what he does? And if you want to follow along, the, uh, there is a, an outline in the church app with a note section. You can take notes. And uh, someone did ask uh, whether I could see the notes that people were taking on the app. And uh, the answer is yes, and we mark them. And so if you've been making rude comments about my, what does he think he's saying there? That was such a bad joke. He's awful. Uh, you know, we see all that as well. And um, it adds to your time in purgatory. Let me just put it out there. 
None of the last like two minutes are true. Uh, I can't see the app and there's no such thing as purgatory. (laughs) Okay, so who is Boaz? Well, in this this story, he is uh, the kinsman redeemer. He's a relative of Naomi. And you say, who is Naomi? If you missed last week, go to our website, go to our app, have a listen to the talk. Naomi is this a Jewish lady who, with her husband Elimelech, had fled famine and hardship, become an economic refugee to Moab, boo, bad Moabites. Uh, and, and, and Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law, a Moabite lady, uh, Naomi's husband, and two sons had died. Uh, after 10 years in Moab, she goes, I'm desperate, I'm going to go back to Israel. Maybe God will provide for me there in Bethlehem. Uh, Ruth, the Moabite widow, says, I'm going to go with you, Naomi. They head on back uh, to Bethlehem, the house of bread. And, uh, and then we come across Boaz, and we encounter Boaz when um, uh, Ruth goes to glean. And uh, gleaning, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But Boaz is a relative. And what's important to know then, in Jewish law, relatives had a uh, privilege and a responsibility and an ability to uh, take care of, rescue, redeem, provide for their relatives. If a relative sold themselves, uh, got into debt, sold themselves into bonded labor to pay off their debt, for example, a, a relative, a kinsman redeemer could pay off the debt for them and win them out of slavery or bonded labor. That was part of the responsibility. The relative also had first rights over uh, the land of a relative. The idea was to keep the land as the major asset and the means of survival in the family. So Boaz was that. He was also, which is really interesting, and I'm sure you picked this up, he was a Hail Gibor. Ah, you'll get the Chayil Gibor. Should we say that together? Chayil? Chayil? Chayil Gibor. So what's a Chayil Gibor? Well, verse 1, a Chayil Gibor is a very interesting man. He's a man of standing. That's what it says there, right? That's the phrase. Uh, Chayil Gibor is this, a man of standing. Uh, 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 a righteous man. A man of means, a man of substance, a man of character. It's a word that is used in Proverbs 31 to describe a righteous woman. It's the same word. Chayil is used of a, a, the righteous woman in Proverbs 31. Uh, it's a, it's a, a man of, of valor, of courage, of means. A godly man. A person who is, uh, uh, has standing in the community. So that's Boaz. But he's a businessman. He's a righteous man. And in the Bible, he's a righteous man who's a farmer, a business owner. Right? Which is interesting because sometimes we think if you're really going to be righteous and religious, you've got to be a priest. Right? You've got to be super overtly religious. But it's fascinating in this story. The righteous man, the Chayil Gibor, is actually a businessman. And he goes about his business, and he's a successful businessman. He's making money. He's got people working for him. He owns land. He has high standing in the world. He is, an, uh, in the midst of being a Chayil Gibor, he's an ordinary man going about his business. So uh, that's really important to note in the story that God uses ordinary people, business people, doing their work. Uh, I could, how much time we got? I could say a whole lot more about that, and maybe I will.
Um, sometimes there is a discomfort in the church that, um, you know, we've got to keep religion out of the workplace. That's really a dumb idea. Like, we can never keep religion out of the workplace at one level, because if you think about our work, our work is where we actually give expression to what really matters in the world. All work is religious work. All work is about providing. All work is about meaning, about purpose, about expressing our core identity and who we are and making a difference in the world. So at one level, and, and all work and the way we do it is full of all kinds of religious assumptions, which is assumptions about ultimate value and meaning and what life's really about. How do you treat people? And, and what the Bible says is, you know, God is very, very interested in this ordinary guy. He's going about his job, running his business. And uh, that's what we're going to look at today. What does it mean for you and for me? Now, um, any farmers in the room? No, no farmers. Any people who uh, are fully religious priests working all day, all night in the temple, just drawing money from the community? I'm probably about the only one, right? So the rest of you are way more like, you're like Boaz's. You're at work running your businesses. You're at work making movies, acting, counting numbers in the workplace, writing you know, legal briefs, uh, looking after people in hospitals, taking photographs, uh, doing deals, um, looking after IT systems, going to school, going to university. You're the Boazes. The question is, are you, you going to be a Chayil Gibor? Are you going to be a Boaz? Are you going to be a man or a woman of, of stature and standing? And what does that look like? And how are you going to do your work? And is, when you go to work tomorrow, are you going to do it in a way that God is with you? And what does that even look like? like does, it, does it mean you have you know, a Jesus saves screensaver on your screen? Is that, is that what it looks like? I don't know, does it mean you, uh, you, you tweet your religious views on your social media account so that everybody can see what you're up to? Oh, I don't know. Does it just mean that you give 10% of what you earn in your business to the church? Oh, that, that, I like, that's a good starting point. Let's just put that out there. <laughs> Is that what it means? Well, let's have a look. What does he do? Well, the first thing that Boaz does in this story is he prays. He prays, you say. How does he pray? Well, look at this great story. Um, uh, he, uh, he goes in there, and uh, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem because his farmland was outside the village, and he's walking into work, and he sees the people working, and he prays for them. He says, the Lord bless you. And they say, the Lord bless you. Oh, he says, the Lord be with you, sorry. And they say, the Lord bless you. Uh, they answered. So uh, what does that mean for you tomorrow when you go to school or university or work or back home into your workplace? The first thing you've got to do is pray for the people that you are going to go and work with, that the Lord will be with them. Now, depending on your workplace, you, you could throw open the door and lead with this out loud. It might not go so well for you. <laughs> Walk into the boardroom the Lord be with you. And all the Anglicans would say, and also with you. <laughs> ah, 
that would sort out the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. Um, you probably wouldn't want to do that, but what you'd want to do is as you go to work, as you go about your everyday ordinary life in the classroom, in the workplace, in your community, you're praying for people that, that the Lord will be with them. That God's with you and them in the middle of your workplace. And that's really significant this Christmas because Christmas is what? The ultimate celebration of Emmanuel, of Jesus coming into the world who is God with us. And the Holy Spirit is with us. And here's the funny thing about God. Um, God is even with people who are not religious, isn't he? It's like he's in workplaces that are not overtly religious, isn't he? He's in your law firms and your accounting businesses and your classrooms. And, and you should pray and you say, Look, God, I want you to come into this space where I'm working. And I want you to bless these people. That's your first responsibility. Now, you know what's wonderful about this? In our time-poor, stressed, sometimes feeling very inadequate as a human being and Christian and worker world, how much effort and time and vulnerability does it take to pray a little prayer like this on your way into work? What does it cost you? Nothing. No one need know about it. And that's okay. Like that's a good starting point. You just pray for your workplace. Pray that God will be with people. Okay. Uh, so we're going to do that now. Uh, we're going to stop right now. I'm going to stop. You might have stopped like five minutes ago. Um, I thought that, thanks, Nate. You thought that's funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's just stop for a moment, and I want you to picture the people you are going to spend this week with at work or home, and just for a moment, just pray that God will be with them. Okay, let's take a moment. Picture yourself walking into work, meeting with a client, looking at a spreadsheet, on the phone to a customer, caring for a patient, and pray that God will be with them. Okay, second thing he does is Boaz uses his power as the boss to protect Ruth, the vulnerable person. Uh, he, he is there to protect the vulnerable. Uh, and that is a remarkable thing in a workplace, is it not? Because in most workplaces, most people accumulate power to protect themselves. Because your workplace is vulnerable. You can lose your job pretty easily. Uh, the bigger the organization, the more vulnerable you are. So the more time you spend in political alliances and making sure that everyone knows what you're doing. And, uh, and a lot of life, even a lot of life in the workplace is actually spent trampling over other people. And, and what I find very funny is there's a whole genre of leadership literature that says really what you've got to do is be authentic and full of integrity in the workplace and vulnerable and open. Uh, there's a great book I read by a management writer who called, and I can't give you the full title because it's a little rude, but Leadership BS, 
where he says, actually, mostly that doesn't work. This guy's not religious. He's not Christian. He says, let's be really brutally honest. Like being nice to people doesn't work because in organizations, actually, it's about power. And you've got to figure that out and be hard-headed and ruthless if you want to get ahead. It's about power. And that is the way of the world. If someone else in your business falls over and is vulnerable and you can use them as a stepping stone to accumulate more power and influence, you should do that, shouldn't you? Well, I mean, Boaz doesn't. It's very hard not to. But look, it, it is really hard not to. Now, because everyone else is, but look at what um, Boaz does to Ruth, right? He notices this woman. He says, uh, who does that young woman belong to? The assumption in the day is that young women like that would either belong to and be under the... And why, by belong to, he means who is, who is, under whose protection is she? That of a husband or a father? And what Ruth is doing is taking advantage of the laws in Israel, which meant that you could, uh, when you were a farmer, you weren't to remove absolutely every little scrap of grain from the field. You were to leave, uh, you were to leave little bits on the ground so that the, the poor could come behind you after the harvest and glean and pick up the little bits that were left so that they wouldn't starve. And Boaz notices this woman and says, Who is she? And uh, the overseer says, she's the Moabite. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And then the next part of that verse is actually quite complicated. The Hebrew is kind of, they don't really know what it means, but they think it means she's been working really, really hard. Okay, so Ruth's been at it all day. And so what does Boaz do? Well, he uses his power to protect her. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Why? Well, keep reading. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. Why? I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Young woman in the field is really, really, really vulnerable. And Boaz, serving God, doing his religious duty, provides for the economic and the sexual protection of this poor woman. That's what we're called to do. So, what does that mean for you? Well... Whatever power you have in your workplace or in your community, pay very close attention to the vulnerable and those further down the social hierarchy and power hierarchy. And if you are a follower of Jesus or you're religious and you're praying, uh, what really matters is that you use your power in your workplace to create an environment where people are not oppressed and taken advantage of. That's what it means. It's what bosses do. This is why Christians have been at the forefront for hundreds of years in labor reform, in reforming the work, uh, factory workers' conditions, in industrializing uh, England, for example, in the formation of trade unions. 
in um, bringing in uh, sensible, sane working hours. Uh, it, it, you just you look through the history of the Christian church and you see Christian leaders in their workplace advocating for the vulnerable and the poor in order to protect them. And that's what it is to be a Christian, right? So how do you do that? Now, what's interesting is that he's still making money. <laughs> like, he's still running a business, isn't he? Like, it doesn't help. It wouldn't have helped Ruth or Boaz... If he'd been so, cons- if if he turned his farm into a charity, which never made a profit and created surplus and couldn't keep the whole enterprise going, so I think for sure he's got to be a good businessman. And for sure, if you're in business, you got to make a profit. You can't make if your business doesn't make a profit, you go out of business and you you, you have no power to serve anyone. But if you're in a business and you're making money and you've got power, use it to protect people is what uh, Boaz does. And uh, he doesn't just protect her. He prays for his workplace. He protects the vulnerable. And then he provides. He uses his business to provide for her. Again, that's the whole problem. Like, and, and he goes over and above what he had to do. He didn't just let her glean. Um, he, uh, he got her involved. He provided uh, drink for her. She probably hadn't had time or means to bring a packed lunch. She didn't have a little, you know, swell uh, insulated thermos with her to keep nice chilled water on tap. Um, and so he says, I'll provide for you. I'll make sure that your needs are taken care of. The men will fill it. Um, and then he goes on and instructs the farmers to make sure that not just the gleanings are available, but there's an abundance of food. In verse 15, as she got up, to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks from, for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, under the gleaning legislation that Boaz was operating his business under, he, he, he had to, God had said, you've got to leave a little bit for her. And he goes, okay, I can do that. I can obey the letter of the law. But actually, Boaz, as a chayil gibor, as a man of standing, as a man who's working with God in his workplace, he says, you know what? I'm actually going to go above and beyond what the letter of the law requires. I'm going I'm to let her get way more than she deserves. I'm going to leave, uh, you know, in contemporary... What, what does this mean today? It means... In your workplace, you, can, you may be in a position where you can insist on getting X in a deal or driving hard the negotiation to get Y. And, and maybe that would be right. But maybe God is saying, you know what? Leave a little bit on the table for the good of the other person. Don't. Don't push your suppliers so hard that they are operating at the absolute, you know, break-even margin. Don't um, don't negotiate such a tough enterprise agreement with your staff that they can't actually live lives of dignity because you're paying them so little. Okay, there's a now. 
Of course, you might say, well, and how does that work? Well, I don't know how it works for you. And, and of course, you don't want to bankrupt your business in the doing of it. <laughs> but you, there's grace. There's generosity in Boaz's provision. And it's not legislated. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, thank you very much. Um, what is? How do you use your power not just to protect, protect, but to generously provide for those in your sphere of influence? That's what it is to be Christian, right? And 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 you don't have to. You're not. It's. Now, maybe here in Australia it's not that big a deal because actually our workplace environment is so incredibly regulated, isn't it? <laughs> you know. But I think the hard attitude of how you treat people with generosity in providing for them. Because our goal, and what I love about this is, um, you know, why, why, do, why do you go to work? Why do you go to work? So let's, call, let's pretend it's not a rhetorical question. Why do you go to work? Well, to earn money. What else? To what? Have a break from the kids. Sally goes, you went to work to have a break from the kids. Yeah, all in favor of that, say aye. Yeah. <laughs> Pay the bills. What else? Why else do you go to work? Social interactions, community, yeah. Why else? Get your needs met. All kinds of ways, yeah. Purpose and calling. Sorry? To help others, yeah. To contribute to society, yeah. So I think um, we work as an, exp- as an expression of being made in the image of God. And our work is the means by which we actually sustain human community. Without work, we'd all starve. So work is vital. And work is about building a thick community where everybody can have what they need to flourish as human beings in relationship made in the image of God. That's why we work. It's immensely significant. Creating surplus value building businesses, running enterprises, running organizations that express our creativity being made in the image of God in all the like almost infinite ways that we can make money and create value and add value is incredibly significant because when we work, we take raw materials, whatever it might be, we take our human creativity and ingenuity in community and we match those up with other human needs and we exchange all of that and Magically, out of that, we create surplus. We bring into being that which wasn't there before. That's a profoundly godlike thing to do. The creation of surplus value, of excess capital, through the process of manufacturing, of meeting needs, and of trade is a massively godlike thing to do. It's almost magical. What wasn't there before is now there. Like we are as a human society 
like in unimaginably richer than we were thousands of years ago, even 500 years ago, even 100 years ago. Where does that wealth come from? Work. And the question is, what do we do with that wealth? Well, we use it to empower, we use it to protect people. And what we want to do is we want to be generous with that. I, I, as an aside, but notice Boaz doesn't give her everything, at least not yet. That requires marriage down the track. But in the workplace, he doesn't, he doesn't give her everything, but he gives her more than she deserves and even more than she needs. And so whatever God has got you doing, using the gifts he's given you to go into the world and take stuff and make stuff and meet human needs and exchange it with other goods and services from other people and create surplus value, that is a wonderful God-ordained thing. That is as valuable a thing to do as sitting here listening to me or singing songs. It's as godly and spiritual a thing to do. Now what you've got to do is then use the surplus to be generous. Now, one of the problems in Australia is our tax system enforces a certain level of generosity, doesn't it? Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It depends. Is it a good thing that our tax system, if you're a wealthy person, if you run your own business, that you know, you'll end up being taxed at, I don't know, 50%? When you add up all the taxes, maybe, of your business, I don't know, I don't know. The government says, Will, you've, got to work for, you've got to work for others for free for about half your time. Is that a good thing or a bad thing for us? Yeah. How do you think it could be framed, Jim? So the, that's right. So the beauty of the tax system is it makes us care for others. The downside of legislating caring for others is we can become very selfish with what we have left. Well, I have to give away 50% to the government anyway. The rest's all mine, baby. And, and that, so I think what that does for us is it, it means we can still be selfish <laughs> as good as our social security, our social safety it is, and as valid as it is, and as massively important it is, is and as important as taxation is, the hard thing for a Christian is we can, we can actually lose this calling from God to be generous to others because we go, well, I've paid my taxes. And isn't that true in our culture? I have so many conversations with people. When you look at the levels of generosity and philanthropy in Australia... Because we're a high-tax environment, we go, well, I've, I've paid my taxes, so I'm not going to give to other people. And I go, I, I get that, and I'm a fan of caring for others, but I just think as followers of Jesus, we need to guard our hearts because even the money we have after tax is not actually ours. It's really God's. And, and even in the doing of our business and the creating of our wealth, we need to make sure that we protect and that we provide over and above what the law demands. Uh, 
So that is what he does. He protects and he provides. And what is the result? What's the result for, uh, for Ruth? Well, she moves from emptiness to abundance. That's what happens, right? She starts off in the story. She and Naomi are literally at risk of starving to death. And by the end, he's organized it so that she is full and she takes back a whole massive amount of barley to Naomi and they eat a whole bunch and there's masses left over. So God's plan for us in our workplaces is to go into the work, into the world, and help people move from emptiness to abundance. That's what we do. And we've done that exceptionally well in Australia, have we not? Uh, I mean, but we need to just, I don't know, think about this as a a global phenomenon. Say, how do we help people move to abundance? Um, I I have to say there's a... There is a view... uh, um, Robert Malthus was an economist who predicted... Very famously, the world would run out of resources and we'd all starve because the world couldn't provide for people, right? And, uh, and every generation, we have people who say, oh, the world is overpopulated. I don't know, when I grew up in the 70s, you know, that was the big thing. We were gonna, all the topsoil was going to be driven off the earth, the earth was going to collapse, and we were just massively overpopulated. You know, we had to limit the growth of people, right? Now, that's just not true. I actually think that's not true because God's plan through our working together and the application of uh, the social brain and capacity we have to build businesses and use science and technology and to work together is that on any measure, the carrying capacity of the world is like 13, 14 billion people. Like we, we, we have plenty. The, the world can sustain vastly more human beings than we than currently inhabit it. Right? And one of the problems with the eco-pessimist kind of climate alarmists, and, I, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm just using those slightly pejoratively because when, when you read a lot of it, the, the prescription to address climate change is to dramatically reduce the number of people alive in the world today. And that's a terrible view. That's not a Christian view. The Christian view is more people. Let's have more people because people are made in the image of God. Where, is the sing- where do you see the glory of God most clearly revealed? It's not out in the wilderness looking at a sunset over an empty mountain range. Where do you see, where is the glory of God most clearly revealed? Where do you see God's image most per square meter in the world? In the most densely populated cities. Right? Like Manhattan on a Monday morning. There's more of the image and the glory of God there than, on, you know, the Alps on a Saturday night. And so, but, so what, what we've got to do is make sure that as more and more people inhabit this world, we organize our world so that everybody can experience the abundance that God intends for them. The only reason people starve to death today is really human problems. It's failures. Of, it's our failures that cause famine and death from famine. Because God 
is really clear. He can bring us from emptiness to abundance. He can bring us from vulnerability to security. That's where Ruth and Naomi were. They came back with nothing as, a, as uh, two widows with no kids at the bottom of the social hierarchy, absolutely, utterly vulnerable, and Boaz got involved and brought them security. So as followers of Jesus, as religious people, we need to make sure that people live in security, that you know that you're not vulnerable to sexual exploitation, economic exploitation, that people can't just walk in and steal your property. And this is the problem with being poor, right? Poor people are vulnerable people. So one of the reasons we, we're so supportive of the work of International Justice Mission in this church is, is IJM have shown that all the great development work you do, you can provide water and sanitation and early childhood health interventions, and those are all incredibly important. You can provide microfinance to set up your little businesses. But if you're poor and a stronger person can come in and steal all the proceeds of your little business and burn down your house and, uh, you know, rape your wife and take your daughter off into sexual slavery and no one comes to help you and there's no justice, there's no security, you're going to stay poor. And we see Boaz. This is a great example. He protects her. And it's a Christian thing to do to say we're here to protect the vulnerable and to set up justice systems locally and globally so that as people move into abundance, they are protected and the poor are protected. And they're protected in your workplace. And you need to see it, right? What I like about, if you read back the story, Boaz noticed Ruth. You know, I was talking with a, a, a friend of mine who works with IJM. He grew up in India. And he said, he grew up in a middle-class family in India, and he said, until he became a Christian, he did not see the poor around him. Because in India, they're just everywhere. You don't see them. I grew up in Africa with subsistence farmers and poor people all around me, and you just don't see it until God opens your eyes, and then you see it, and you see their poverty, and you see their insecurity and their vulnerability, and then under God, you've got to do something about it, and you do something about it by creating wealth, creating good businesses, flourishing, justice system reform, and what happens then is it's not just enough to, to make sure you've got enough food and that you're safe. Uh, there's a move from isolation to inclusion. People are hungry for relationships, so this woman, uh, these women, Ruth and Naomi, who've been out, and, and Ruth is a Moabitess. She's a She's a despicable person, part of it. She's a person who's part of a despised group. And they come back with nothing to offer. And Boaz, in this beautiful act, uh, includes her over lunch, brings her to come and eat with the rest of his workers and share a meal together. And this, if, if I'm honest and I think about us, now let me be even more honest, when I think about me, it's... Uh, is it not much easier to give my money to, um, well, is it not much easier to create wealth, buy property, invest in a business, build a business, earn lots of money, okay? And then, and then maybe I'll give some away and I'll create employment for others. I can, I can help build global security by giving money to IJM and I go, oh, that's great, you know, I'm doing my bit for the poor. I can, I can give some cans of food to Anglicare and yeah, I'm going to help the poor this Christmas. 
You know what people want is they actually want relationships. They want inclusion. Like who's going to sit around your Christmas table this Christmas? Who are you including? Is it just people like you? Is it just, you know? How do we, how do we build a society and a culture where the, the people who have nothing to add to our lives are still included in our community? Loneliness is a killer, right? Like, uh, if, if, you're, if you're lonely, if you're an older person and you're lonely, that has the same health implications as smoking, you know, 15 cigarettes a day or taking a dog for a walk in the smoke for half an hour. You know, take your pee. <laughs> like, loneliness is, loneliness is a killer. The data shows it to us. And one of the beauties of the church, right, is this experience on a Sunday is, is an antidote to loneliness. Like, Anyone can come and join us. The question is, when they come in, do we let them really come in? Do we let people who just walk in make a claim on our lives? Are we a Boaz, including people? Are you a Boaz at work? Do you, do you look for the people in your workplace who are excluded and marginalized and make sure that it's not just all the cool kids who go out for coffee? Like, you know, does the CEO sit down with the cleaner, right? When last did that happen? Maybe you're not the CEO, but, but you get the picture. Like how do you build relational inclusion in your life? And that's, that's a tough one, I reckon, for us. But that's what it is, and, and we do it everywhere we go. So to move uh, from emptiness to abundance, vulnerability, security, isolation to inclusion, that's what it is to be truly religious. Okay, so then you go, what's the role of our church? The role of our church is to support each other in becoming people who can do this. The role of our church is not just to fill this building with people who like singing and listening to me. As wonderful as both those activities are, I'm sure. <laughs> the role of our church is to, to, is to help us be this and do this wherever we find ourselves. So there we go. Let's pray. Lord God, um, help, us, help us be like Boaz because that's what you're like. You, you fill us, our emptiness. You provide us with ultimate security and you include us in your very own life. You are with us. You protect us. You provide for us. So, Lord, for our little church, help us be a community that does this, where we become these kinds of people. And may the world be a better place because of it. Amen.